to Dermatology UK, the podcast. The podcast where we talk about all things skin. My name is Ashley. And I'm Emmanuel. And on today's episode, we will be shining a light on skin cancer. Mm. So there are two main types of skin cancers, melanoma and non-melanoma. And they are both huge topics in their own right. So today we will just be focusing on non-melanoma skin cancer. We hope to explain what's actually happening on a cellular level what to look out for, treatment options, and importantly, how to prevent. Absolutely, and we're joined by a very special guest today on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So our next guest, Dr. Emma Craythorne. She is co-author to the Dermatology Pocket Tutor book, which is a fantastic pocket guide for dermatology. She's also a consultant dermatologist at one of the leading dermatology centres here in the UK and star of the Bad Skin Clinic, which haven't, if you haven't watched already, fantastic season one out now. Uh, if you don't follow her already on Instagram, she does a fantastic compendium on skin, on various skin conditions, incredibly educational and a very useful tool. Dr. Emma Craythorn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for asking me to be on this. I'm really, really pleased. So I hope I can shed some light on information of no melanoma skin cancers that will help out people who are listening to this. Absolutely, I'm sure it will if anyone's listening out there. <laughs> so, to, what, what is a skin cancer? So, a skin cancer is whenever there has been a, a mutational change within the cell, um, and these are skin cells. So, the skin is made up of lots of different types of cells. So, first of all, we'll think about the skin being a bit like a brick wall, where you've got the base of the brick walls made up of these cells called basal cells, and they're quite big, big square cells. They sit as the foundation stones. And then they undergo a change as they move to the top of the brick wall and they become these flattened cells. Um, and then they just disappear as dust. So that's how the, the epidermis is made, all the way from these basal cells. And then they become squamous cells and then it's the dust. Um, and whenever there's most typically UV radiation, but um, it can be other things as well, but typically UV radiation will come in and it will cause um, a chain of reactions that result in um, mutational changes or these signature mutations within cells. Um, and that can be within the basal cell, so the big foundation stone, or squamous cells, which are further up the epidermis. And if it happens in a basal cell, it becomes a basal cell carcinoma. And if the UV mutational changes become a cancer in the squamous cells, then it's a squamous cell can cancer. So these are cells that are continuing to divide and they don't, they don't have the kind of switch off mechanism that tells them to stop dividing and they're abnormal. So you end up with a, an abnormal amount of those cells and um, they disrupt the normals, the normal skin. So you'll often end up with bleeding or weeping of the skin or breaks in the surface of the skin. Um, and they can kind of go on then and invade the cartilage or the fat layer, or in the case of the sun, then spread around the body and then set up little seedlings elsewhere. And that's the metastatic disease. So um, it, typically within the skin, you'll see um, basal cell carcinoma is the most common. Um, and then followed by squamous cell carcinoma. And then if you were to get uh, the, the signature mutations within the melanoma, sorry, within a melanocyte, then that's when it becomes a melanoma, which we'll not talk about today. But it's just to show you that skin cancer encompasses 
all of these different types of um, cancers as such. And it all really boils down to what is the original cell that had that mutational change within it to then become a cancerous um, cell. Mm. And who, so it depends really. So what you're saying is so a basal cell carcinoma is from a slightly different layer in the skin. Is that right? Than a squamous cell carcinoma. Yeah, so basal cells and squamous cells are both part of the epidermis, but they're just okay. different parts of the epidermis. So the yeah. basal cell being almost like the lining of the epidermis that's in contact with the dermis. Um, and they're the bigger cells that then go on to make the squamous cells as such. So depending on which part of it it is and which, which mm-hmm. change you've mm-hmm. got is whether it's going to be the basal cell carcinoma or the squamous cell. And what, what causes it? Why would somebody get a skin cancer? So... Um, Lots of different reasons, but um, for skin cancers, really, the number one cause is um, UV radiation. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it typically was thought to, to really be UVB, but it's UVB and UVA. So that is where most of the skin cancers really originate from. And so people will tend to have kind of risky sun behavior, particularly in their teens, 20s, 30s. And unfortunately, you don't get an immediate, well, if you burn, that's great because that stops you from continuing to damage your skin. Yeah. But um, if you don't burn and you're continually exposing your skin to um, more UV radiation, then then each of those times, each of those injuries will then mount up and then that's when the skin cancer develops. So that's a typical, you know, more than any other reason of why people develop skin cancers is the sun. And it's, it's, is about burning but it's also about chronic exposures so long chronic exposures so the person who's repeatedly outside working or playing golf and not putting protection on or cycling their bike or and those patients that are exposed for a long time are at risk there's other reasons too so and I mean, the, the other reasons are pretty small, to be honest, but for basal cell carcinomas, other things that can cause it are, you know, your genetic makeup. So I do see basal cell carcinomas in the genital area, and I don't think anybody's out there. Well, some people are out there, some yeah, bathing some. in that way. <laughs> I've actually seen, like, it is a thing, isn't really? it? Yeah. Do perineal sunbathing. So, um... That's new to me. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently it's very good for you to do this perineal sunbathing according to instagram so i see a lot of people um posting pictures of themselves perineal sunbathing so undoubtedly that might contribute to um bccs in about 15 years time in the perineal area but commonly it's more to do with your genetics in that area rather than um obviously uh uv exposure and if somebody has had a lot of radiation that can increase your risk of developing basal cell carcinomas. So if you had radiotherapy. And then um, for the squamous cell carcinomas, there are a number of other reasons. So people who have ulcers that are repeatedly, you know, they're not healing. Um, so leg ulcers that continually keep breaking down um, or, you know, um, a, a thermal injury or a burn that continually breaks down. The more that they undergrow this breakdown and repair and breakdown and repair, then they're more likely to get these mutational changes in it and then develop a squamous cell carcinoma. So, so kind of thermal injuries, burns, um, and repeated areas of wound breakdown and trauma, they all contribute to SCCs as well as UV radiation. Um, and then there's some kind of photosensitizing medications that 
we take that so um, some antifungals with those and exposure to even small amounts of UV radiation can induce these squamous cell carcinoma changes. Uh, so they're the, the kind of main the main reasons really. There's obviously lots of wee tiny reasons like arsenic and all this, but they're the main reasons. And then some people have a genetic condition that predisposes it to it. So for people who have um, basal cell nevus syndrome or Gorlin syndrome, um, they'll develop basal cell carcinomas at a fairly early age and they can go on to develop hundreds and hundreds. And then conditions like xeroderma pigmentosum, where people will develop these non-melanoma skin cancers, typically around the age of about four, if it's not been diagnosed. So um, because the problem in that condition is that you're not able to repair the DNA damage caused by UV radiation. So um, we're able to kind of repair it and those patients are not. Um, and then again, there's like the genetics, sometimes there's some drugs that we can take. So things like azathioprine or other immunosuppressants whenever we get these UV radiation hits, if we're taking some of these medications, we don't detect it and we don't repair it. So the onward pathway of damage can still continue. So um, that's why people who have renal transplants or cardiac transplants will attend a clinic so that they can have their skin monitored to look for, uh, to look for skin cancers. Now, it's not the drug that's causing it, but it's the drug reducing your ability to repair the UV is causing it. So I just want to ask one uh, question about something you said that may seem like a silly question, but it popped to my head. Just about, you know, you get all these alternative treatments and people buying things online and you picked up about potential photosensitizers uh, and things like certain funguses. Do you have any experience of patients perhaps buying things online or like Chinese herbal things that people don't know make them more sensitive to sunlight? Have you ever heard of things yeah. like that? Yes, and um, there's lots of things that... that that can sensitize your skin to sunlight. I mean, there's lots of antibiotics, but there's no there's no information as far as I know that although you're more sensitive to it, does it actually cause that UV-induced kind of mutational change or increase that? But what what is a problem of what's sold on online or actually in any beauty shop at all? Are these kind of um they're these they're meant to be they're called tan activators or tan prolongers yeah. and what they are or and the big cosmetic houses make these and it surprises me that they're made but they're designed to offer you a bit of uvb protection just a, a bit of uvb protection not a lot and um it means that you don't burn with it because the you can select out which filters you use. So you'll have a UVB protection, a little bit, and you won't burn. So you'll stare at the sun for a little bit longer. But they offer little to zero um, UVA protection. So you would maybe, you know, go out and sit in the sun for 20 minutes and you might burn and you think, right, well, I'm going inside. That's your body telling you, right, I've got to get out of here because this is not good for my skin. Whereas these are specifically designed to um, filter out a bit of UVB so that you don't burn keep you outside and you'll just have the UVA part, which is the tanning part. So you will then tan. Um, and obviously the tan is associated with additional damage with yeah. it. It's not you just get a tan for free. You get a tan and then you get, you know, wrinkling and yeah. sun yeah. cancer changes <laughs> and all of this. So, but the, I mean, you just buy these, like these big cosmetic houses make them. And I actually can't believe it. They're called you know, tan enhancers and yeah. So they're basically just a little bit of UVB and uh, yeah, you end up with a lot of UVA. 
which might be okay for your tan, but your skin's going to look rubbish in about 10 years after that. <laughs> so if you were to, you know, get a skin cancer, is it too late to start taking a protective action against further skin cancers? No, um, it's not. It's never too late because, you know, each little bit of um, UV radiation or, or hit is going to cause further damage. So yeah. um, it's never too late. I know that a lot of people will then think that, think, oh, well, you know, this is damage that was done, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, the thing is, is that you can help in kind of almost to reverse the damage that you've done a little bit. So if you're able to, there's some supplements and things like that that you can take that have been shown to reduce the rate at which you develop these skin cancers in some people who have got extensive sun damage. And you can use your SPF, which reduces these kind of additional hits that your skin's getting. Um, so maybe ones that were on the brink of changing, but, you know, might not change. If you can really protect them, well, then you'll stop those ones from getting that final hit to become, this, you know, the skin cancer as such. So it's ne it actually is really is never too late at all. Um, uh, and if um, so, someone has had one, would they their risk of getting another one would be slightly higher so would you monitor them in your clinics regularly or is it up to the patient to keep an eye on their skin so forward? it depends really what it is that you've got so um anybody who has a skin cancer has got an increased risk of developing another skin cancer that's you know we know that um but the because whatever you Again, coming back to this idea, this is generally caused by UV radiation. Mm. And it's not like that one little spot on the side of your cheek was the only bit that got exposed to that amount of sun. You know, yeah. the bit on your nose did and your chin did and your forehead did and your hands did, your arms did. So it's, you know, you've lived a life where those things have been exposed. So you are at more risk of developing another skin cancer if you already have one definitely yeah. um but it depends on what type of skin cancer you have developed so if you've developed a basal cell carcinoma which is typically slow growing typically can they really do not spread i mean they they can but very 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 rarely so we can almost say that they don't spread even though they do very very and <laughs> um, so they and they are a local nuisance where they are. So if it's been treated effectively with the correct method of treatment, then you don't really need to be seen again. You just need to be aware that you've had one and you might get another one. And the same for the squamous cell carcinomas, if you have a low-risk squamous cell carcinoma, because squamous cell carcinoma is a whole different beast to BCCs. You know, it's so diverse in their presentation and their potential outcomes. The majority of them do incredibly well. And if they're a low-risk, small one, you can almost regard it as a BCC. You, that person is followed up, but they're only followed up for one year. Okay. But if you've got a high-risk, nasty squamous cell carcinoma, then that is not so good. And mm. you have to be followed up very closely. And you're followed up at three-month intervals and um, because your risk of metastatic spread is much higher. So... Um, and then we know that people who have developed squamous cell carcinomas, you know, in a few, multiple ones of them, they again are then more likely to develop a melanoma. So if people have lots of them and the ones that they have are high risk, well, then they really should be followed up. But for the vast majority, they if they've had effective treatment and there are these low risk lesions, they don't really need followed up other than with good advice to say, if you get this, then you can access a clinic quickly. 
And you've kind of, sorry, Manny, I'm putting in. Um, you've kind of mentioned it already, but how, how can you explain what a BCC looks like compared to an FCC? Yeah, definitely. So a BCC is a, I'm going to give you the typical examples, okay? Obviously, right. there's variations from this, um, and we see them all slightly there, but they're very typical things to look out for. So a BCC, um, typically, uh, if you push, pull the skin away from it either side, so if you get a couple of fingers and you pull it away, in fact, in my book, there's a picture of me doing it on one of my patient's <laughs> nurses. <laughs> but if you, we'll have if, a you link pull at the the skin, <laughs> if you pull the skin away either side, what tends to happen with a BCC is it kind of pops up ever so slightly out of the skin okay. and it's it's pearly and um, so it looks like little pearls and it's got a shine off it um, and you if you take a photo you always see the shine reflect back off it and that's because it's a basal cell so these cells are those bigger cells mm -hmm. and there's lots of these bigger cells so um it looks shiny reflecting back compared to the normal skin cell so it's got this pearly look to it um, and then it also has these telangiectasia so tiny little blood vessels running over the pearliness the very very classic basal cell carcinomas or they used to be called rodent ulcers almost look like a donut you know the donuts that you get with the ring with the hole in the middle yeah so they look a bit like that and if you pull the skin you see the the donuts stand up a little bit prouder and then you've got these little telangiectatic vessels running over the top of the, the donut the whole way around they got called rodent ulcers because they look like rats had come along and nibbled the middle of it out which oh, is why gosh. you get this dip yeah they don't call it that anymore no some people still not very do. nice and <laughs> so that's the that's this pearliness and um, so the two key things for a bcc is it has this pearliness and it has the telangiectasia the little tiny vessels and then for squamous cell carcinoma as well this really depends on how uh well the word is differentiated which means that um how much is it like the original cell so if you've got a squamous cell carcinoma, they can still do the job of making keratin because you remember that's what these squamous cells do. They make that keratin on the outside of our body. If they still can make keratin, then they tend to make lots and lots of the keratin. So you get almost like a little volcano type of a lesion coming out of the skin with lots and lots of keratin on top of it. Um, and then it can go all the way just to being an eroded ulcer in the skin. Okay. So as opposed to moral is really, they aren't quite as typical as the BCCs would be. But mm -hmm. if you've got something that's been there and it's been there for more than six weeks and, you know, it's out of keeping with what else you've got, then even if you, you should take a biopsy, you know, these are the things yeah. that should have a biopsy taken off them. And you pick, I just picked up on something you said as well about risk, a high risk SEC. What mm -hmm. makes something high risk compared to low risk? What are you looking at? Yeah, very good. So then what we do is we, they're looked at and it means, what it means for high risk, it means high risk of it coming back at that site and high risk of it spreading around the body. So that's what makes something, that's why, why we think of this as high risk. So which ones um, can potentially be this high risk so it might come back or spread around the body. And what makes it really is, first of all, the size of it. So, um, and that's the size as we're looking at it clinically. So two centimetres, if this is something bigger than two centimetres, that's moving it into the high risk group. Yeah. Um, 
And then it really comes down to what we see under the microscope when we biopsied it, because we want to know how thick it is um, and how much it invades into the skin, but perhaps out of the fat or out of the muscle or even more. Um, so how thick it is and also whether um, it's wrapped around any of the nerves um, and kind of the lymphatic system. So again, these are things that we just see when we look under the microscope on the biopsy. And if we see a big lesion and it's wrapped around bigger nerves on the biopsy and it's a thick lesion, then this is very much in this high risk group. There's certain high risk sites as well. <clears throat> so if somebody has it on the, the lips or the ear, these are high risk. <clears throat> yeah, and you've, you've mentioned biopsies there a few times. And just to pick up on this, I just want to make sure that everyone listening knows um, what a biopsy is. So I'll briefly say a biopsy is where we remove a small area of the suspicious lesion under a local anesthetic. And as you mentioned, it's looked at under the microscope and this tends to help with deciding on treatment option. I have two questions around biopsies. Do you always have to do them first? And secondly, can you have this done locally by your GP? And so in 2006, I think it was, um, that the National Institute of Clinical Excellence released these guidelines on how um, skin cancer should be managed within the UK. And um, if the GP is a member of the local skin cancer MDT, then they are able to treat some types of skin cancers in the community. Okay. But on the whole, most most GPs will refer to a two-week wait up at a clinic if they suspect it to be a skin cancer. Um, uh, so that's what really tends to happen. So most patients, although they see their GP, will be sent by a two-week wait. Um, and then that is where the, the tumour is likely to be. Probably it depends, really. If it's so clinically obvious that it's uh, what, what it is, then it would just be removed straight away. Yeah. Um, if it's something that's got a bit of debate about what it is or how serious it is, um, oh, because like I said to you about those squamous cell carcinomas, you know, and um, you want to get an idea of how serious it might be because if it's a high risk one, then you um, will want to take larger margins to clear it rather than having narrower margins. Yeah. And for things like basal cell carcinomas on the head and neck, the best way of treating that is to do Mohs micrographic surgery, which being a Mohs surgeon, I have to get in there, of course. Yes, <laughs> yes definitely. Not promoting my own game, but it's fact. Um, and the reason why is that most case, most centres will want a biopsy before they will commit to doing, to doing um, Mohs surgery. Um, and then they would have Mohs surgery for those head and neck lesions. And is that a day um, case for patients? They just come in on... Yes, yeah, it is. Couple hours, it's, it's, so if a patient's coming for Mohs surgery, um, they should know that they typically will come in the morning because this can be a procedure that can last for a lot of the day. In most cases, it doesn't, but every hospital likes to be prepared just in case. Mm -hmm. It's only reserved for lesions that are on the head and neck because the purpose of Mohs surgery is to give you the highest cure rate so you get a cure rate of 99% compared to 94% for just cutting it out. Now, 94% is still brilliant, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But if this is around the eye, you know, you've got a recurrence rate of 1% compared to 6 or 7%. So it's very important that you, you, that you would have these high-risk sites that are very delicate and treated with something like Mohs. So 
and um, it's got the highest cure rate but also for that high cure rate um you have the smallest defect size so Again, for a wide local excision, somebody would come in and have about four millimetres taken around what they can see. Whereas with Mohs, you'll have a one to two millimetre margin taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's clear, then you don't need to have any more. So that's um, so that's the advantage of Mohs. You get the smallest defect size possible, but also the highest cure rate possible. Um, and so when patients come along, they that's all explained to them. It's all done under a local anaesthetic. And... Uh, the, the skin cancer is removed and then looked at under the microscope and um, that while they're there so it takes about 40 minutes to look at it under the microscope and if it's all been removed then they just get stitched up Brilliant. and if it's not all been removed then a wee bit more is taken and then that's looked under the microscope and then blah. but most people are clear after two treatments so you know two you know two visits to the surgery in the morning and then they're all repaired in the afternoon and waiting list for a bcc with Mohs would that be a couple of weeks longer than obviously a melanoma because you'd want to do that within the two weeks or are they both in the same bracket so so a melanoma and a squamous cell carcinoma are treated under this two-week wait rule yeah and a melanoma wouldn't have no surgery because the kind of tumor in the cells it doesn't lend well to being frozen which is what we have to do for Mohs so um but they would be treated within two-week period Squamous cell carcinoma is also treated in the same way. So it's under the two-week wait. But a basal cell carcinoma is not. It's under the 18-week you know, treatment pathway. Yeah. So it's got a bit of a longer time. And they're the ones that do do well, but you know, do better with those. Well, that's because it's slow growing and you know, patients shouldn't be worrying about it. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Radiotherapy, that isn't really something that you'd often treat your patients with with non-melanoma yeah so, yeah so radiotherapy is is very useful for patients who really don't want to undergo any surgery okay and um, it's it is very very good treatment for skin cancers and um, the slight downside with radiotherapy is that it's it's great at the beginning but cosmetically after about 10 years the wound or the area doesn't look quite so good because you get uh the skin becomes paler in color it becomes thinner it becomes dipped and often you might get a bit of pigmentary incontinence with brown splodges throughout the area so cosmetically after about 10 years it just doesn't look as good um so that's one downside another downside is that you know if you was to recur under an area of radiotherapy then that's much more extensive surgery that has to happen Mm. because you've got to remove the entire radiotherapy area and that's already been had a decent margin attached to it to try and get the skin cancer in the first place and then lastly there is this kind of scatter dose effect of the radiation to some degree so you know if you've got underlying muscle sorry underlying bone or cartilage and for example, the nose or around the eye area, then that can cause damage or breakdown of some of those structures. Okay. Um, and so that that's something to consider. And then you get this uh, 1% increased risk of malignancy for every 10 years that you live. So, you know, that's probably okay for most 90-year-olds to accept that risk. <laughs> but if you were 20 yeah. saying, well, I want to have radiotherapy for my BCC, well, then that's probably got a heavier risk if you know you're going to live for another 80 years for example yeah. so um so, so that's why radiotherapy is not really the the top option it's always a second line option 
However, for some patients, it is the top option because mm-hmm. if you've got somebody who has a skin cancer that is um, it's very troublesome in the sense that it's bleeding or it's smelly or it's ulcerated and they've got lots of other medical comorbidities, well, one dose of palliative radiotherapy will you know, facilitate the drying up of that lesion and actually then you'll have a much better quality of life. And that might be for a patient who wouldn't want to go through surgery. So, so for some cases, it is very first line whenever there's those other medical comorbidities. And then sometimes uh, radiotherapy has to be used if there is metastatic spread of some skin cancers. So it would be employed at that point after surgery. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I think, I think we've covered the main treatment options there. Can I now ask you about actinic keratoses? So the precancerous form of squamous cell carcinomas, they can often be, I suppose, misinterpreted for inflammatory skin conditions like psoriasis as they're quite scaly and found often in the elderly. Do you use different treatment options for these? Like, I don't know, cryotherapy, for example? So it's so funny. I had a patient, just as you said, exactly that today, who had come in for Mohs surgery for a BCC on his forehead and he had widespread actinic keratosis all over his face particularly the temple from the top of his head. And I said to him, oh, um, are you using a topical cream for this? And because uh, which I'll come on to, which is what we use for actinic keratosis. And he said, yes. And I said, oh, great. <laughs> um, and he said, my GP, um, I've been given this one. And he brought it out to show me. And I was like, oh, not so great. Because oh. it had been exactly confused for seborrheic dermatitis. Um, and actually it was all of his actinic keratosis because the two look so similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, you know, for some patients with the, the red patches and the scaliness overlying it, particularly in the pattern that this man had it, um, you could see how easy it would be to confuse the two. So I think that's right. Um, but for actinic keratosis, if you've got a single actinic keratosis, or an actinic corn. So if you've got a single lesion and you're sure what that single lesion is, well then undoubtedly something like cryotherapy is probably the best way to treat it because you give it a blast and it freezes off. The exception to that is if you happen to get somebody who has an actinic keratosis with brown or black skin, which we don't see so often, um, just because it's very naturally protected, then the cryotherapy can cause a white mark to appear, which is probably more cosmetically troublesome than the actinic keratosis ever was. Mm -hmm. So um, that's just one little caution for the cryotherapy. However, most people don't present with one little actinic keratosis. You know, the reason why they've got an actinic keratosis is from years of cumulative UV exposure. And, you know, it hasn't just affected this one particular spot on their cheek. It's affected the entire cheek because um, that's the side that's been exposed or the other side's been exposed. And it just changes all over. So typically we try and treat them in a field area and we use some of the topical agents like five fluorouracil mm-hmm. um, or sometimes a micromod, but typically five fluorouracil uh, to treat the, the, the kind of um, the field change. Um, it's a once a day treatment that goes on uh, for four weeks usually. And it co- it's very clever in the sense that it causes a, a, a an inflammatory reaction um, uh, what's the cytotoxic reaction really um, in these cells that w- that only have the specific DNA damage so if you've got normal skin with no DNA damage it's not going to do anything but if there's DNA damage in it will so 
it's very clever and they can clear these um, actinic keratosis away, covering the whole area. Um, but if there are thicker lesions, then then you can move on to things like scraping it away. Okay. Um, and if it's any that's got a, a, a very thickened base, then they're the ones that you really do want to just make sure it's not a squamous cell carcinoma. So mm. you would scrape it and send it away to just check it's not a squamous cell. You said something about, sorry, uh, black minority ethnic skin, darker skin tones. Uh, and I think there's a bit of a myth, and you can agree with me or not, but uh, people that have darker skin tones sometimes don't think they uh, they get skin cancers. Is that correct? I think that's right. I think, I mean, and there, there's, there's some truth to that in the sense that um, there is natural sun protection there. So you don't get as much UV-induced changes because there's a natural level of protection. Mm. However, um, they are you do still get skin cancers in brown and black skin. Mm. And particularly, um, particularly in places where there's a real melting pot of people mm -hmm. because genetics from, say, for example, an Irish family um, uh, mixing with genetics from, say, an African family, if those genetics, you know, if you're then more prone to developing certain types of cancers or Gorlin syndrome or any of these happen to mix together, then you can't get it. One second, it was the door. No Typical. I've locked it. <laughs> we could ask a quick question about psychology support for patients with skin cancers. Do you know of any psychological support available for patients that have particular traumatic, maybe facial, you know, uh, cancers that have extensive surgery? Is there any mental health support for them? Yes. Yeah, so all of the, um, so I lead our specialist MDT for skin cancer. So these are all very tricky, um, you know, or complex, I suppose I should really use that word. So very complex in skin cancers. And as part of this um, multidisciplinary team that we are, there is a psychologist attached to it. Okay. So for patients who do require that service, then that is, that's there. And every patient who has that diagnosis given to them um, does have somebody that they can speak to should they want to. And there are some people that we just directly refer to ensure mm -hmm. that they are seen. Brilliant. No, that's really good. And one thing actually, sorry, it's a little bit off topic that um, I heard about when I started working in, in dermatology was about the support for um, the armed forces. So for men and women with skin cancer who served in the armed forces, they, they qualify for like a bit of a pension, I believe. But yes, that's right. There is um, a veteran support. So for, um, so for uh, veterans uh, from the army from and from the armed forces and there's specific dates that this um covers if you know they're developing skin cancers then there is a, a kind of financial support available mm -hmm. and you can get it directly there's a form that can be downloaded directly from the veteran is it veteran uk or i think it was very that's what i was trying to look look at there i think it was veteran uk we we have the forms yeah. we have the forms here that our sister um goes through and diligently you know make sure that everybody who's entitled to yeah, it has a copy it's really good i think yeah and so, so, you know sometimes you're just not aware of these um these websites and i suppose a few other ones that might be of um benefit for the listeners would be so the 
BAD, so the British Association of Dermatology, British Skin Foundation, um, Cancer Research UK. Is there any other ones that you can recommend? Sort? I think I think the British Association of Dermatologists do a very good um, a good series on that, and also and the American Academy of Dermatologists mm. they have mm-hmm. a good patient information platform, um, also. Uh, so they would be the probably the main sources that I would suggest. Okay, brilliant. So I suppose uh, lastly, um, prevention. So sunscreens—that's really the main, <laughs> the main thing. It's, I know. I feel like all I do is tell people to put sunscreen on, put sunscreen on, put sunscreen yeah. on. But it's so true. I put know. Sunscreen on. And honestly, your compendium on on Instagram—is that your that was that your your little boy that was putting on the boy, sunscreen? Yeah. The one minute yeah. skin. Oh, I laughed. He was adorable. Um, so oh, you, should, you should definitely check I'm that out afterwards. <laughs> I think as well, what people need to know as well when it comes to sun cream, uh, and I tell my patients this: it doesn't matter if it's sunny out, if it's cloudy out, it doesn't matter if it's raining. Put on your sunscreen because <laughs> UVA will get through the clouds. It will even get through windows. So your best. That's way. exactly right. Yeah, your best. that's exactly right. I say put it on first thing in the morning every morning and just realize that this is something a bit like brushing your teeth it doesn't yeah. take long it just takes a minute to do it hence why we're like one minute skin one minute skin <laughs> it just takes a minute and, and on my instagram as well you'll see um a, um, a little girl um as well called olivia who's one of the patients um with xp and she talks about hers and how she puts her um, sunscreen on in one minute and she puts oh. it all on in one minute so, you know, there's inspiration for people. Oh, I don't have time to do that. Or, I, you know, it's just going to take up too much bother. Well, to see these kids doing it, do you think, well, actually, of course I can be doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just so important to find one that you really, really like. And you actually, you know, when you wash your face and you put your moisturizer on because your skin then feels nice. Oh, I've got my moisturizer. People, you've got to find a sun cream that's going to do that for you as well. Yeah. Um, and although I'm calling the sun cream, I actually don't call it a sun cream. I call it a radiation screen because effectively, you know, it's almost annoying that it's a sunscreen and boots put it away whenever it's winter time, you know. Um, yeah. Keep it at the front of the shop. It's a radiation screen. It's for all year round. So put it on first thing in the morning and then I say put it on again if you can top up at lunchtime. And you're exactly right. In Whether it's, you know, summer, whether it's winter, whether it's rainy, whether it's cloudy, um, all the time. So uh, that's the message. That's the way to prevent it. Thank you. That was a very good take-home message there. Sun cream, sun cream, sun cream. Uh, <laughs> and sun cream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bro, well, would there be any other take-home messages you'd like to add? No, I don't think so. I suppose other than, as well as the sunscreen, it's about just general behaviour. So yeah. um, it's about that mindset of making sure that you take your hat out with you, particularly if you're somebody who has a bald or thinning hair hair because that that is the that is the real thing it's like otherwise you forget to put your sunscreen on the top of your of your head and a lot of my patients will then um you know whenever it gets a little bit too late really it's a little it's never too late um <laughs> but they, they've done quite a lot of damage so it's not just about the sunscreen so i say a wide brimmed hat um, and then the other thing that people really forget is their neck. And now is quite a good time because you can buy these, again, UPF. So that's kind of a sunscreen enclosed buffs that go around your neck. 
um, and they also will protect your neck and they're very light so it's not like they're heavy they're designed for summer wear mm -hmm. so they're very light and you know you can pull these up over your face when you go on your um on your tube ride or on your bus mm -hmm. so yeah. they're kind of quite multifunctional they then go on as a hairband I actually should start a range of these because you I talk should. about this too much. Yeah. <laughs> we'll cut that bit out so they won't know. <laughs> <laughs> but they're so practical. So I think a hat and I think the, um, the, the what do you call it, the, the buff is a good idea and long-sleeved uh, clothes, like the UPF clothes, and you can get nice gloves as well to protect the back of your hands. I mean, I don't suggest that you have to go and do all of those things, but it is a bit of a mindset change and then mm. that just becomes the new habit. Yeah, definitely. And as someone that is approaching his 30s and my hairline seems to be going back by the year, I'll definitely take on that hat. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, very pleasure. educational. I've learned a lot there. Uh, good practical tips. And I think it was useful as well when we spoke about the patient journey, just kind of the two week waits and things and what to expect. So thank you. Thanks very much. It's been really good fun. <laughs> so where can people find you? So, well, I suppose you can find me kind of all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was about, I was about to continue. I'll, I'll leave you do it. <laughs> do you have an Instagram account or where can they get in contact with yeah, you? So, yeah, so um, on my Instagram account, which is um, at Dr. Emma Craythorne. So right. I, I do a lot of um, kind of patient information, um, some videos, um, doing a deep dive into some uh, ingredients and why we as dermatologists recommend things. It's all mm -hmm. very simplified. It's all based on evidence and it's all just to try and help people understand their skin a little bit more and what um, what they can do for it. Uh, so, so that's all what I'm doing on my act, Dr. Emma Craythorne. And then we're also filming our second series now of the Bad Skin Clinic. So we've Ooh, just restarted filming job. after all of the the COVID um, pandemic. Well, we'll see what happens and how long that stays <laughs> yeah. able to happen for, who knows? <laughs> so it's gone from no PPE in the first lot of filming to lots of PPE in the second lot of <laughs> Not filming. using web cameras and filming it like that, are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah so uh so that is going to be coming out at the end of the year the second series of the bad skin clinic fab well lovely i can't wait to check that out thank you again for your time <laughs>Hello and welcome back to the end of the podcast. Bing bong. No. No. Didn't work. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, so we hope you enjoyed that episode. And just to explain again, we have spoken about non-melanoma skin cancers today. Yes, that's right. So we've spoken about basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas mainly. BCCs and SCCs for short. Exactly. And essentially they're just caused by different cells. Okay, so you don't need to know too much about it. I'm sure some of that today was a little bit confusing. So if you do have any questions, feel free to message us or we will be putting some more detailed information on the Instagram page as we always do. Um, but your kind of main take home point from this is if you've got a spot or a lesion or something that you're suspicious of um, that hasn't healed over the last four weeks or is itchy or bleeding, seek medical attention from your GP and they will usually have a look at it under a microscope, or not a microscope, a magnifying glass, which is called a dermatoscope, or is the word that we use. And if it's suspicious, they'll refer you on to a big center like ours. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree with you. The main thing is to seek help. Not every lesion requires treatment. Not nope. every lesion is something to be concerned about. But if it is a new lesion, like Ashling said, or it's something you're concerned about, please see your GP and they will refer on if needs be. Exactly. But other than that... I think that's it. Lovely. Well, if you want to be involved in one of our episodes or have any questions, you can find us on Dermatology UK, the podcast on Instagram and Facebook or Derm UK podcast on Twitter. Thanks for joining us and we look forward to hearing from you guys soon. Bye. Okay, bye. bye.